following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want us to look at a very, very early prophecy about 850 years before the coming of Christ about his coming. And it's found in Isaiah 53, if you'll turn there, please. And this passage that we're going to look at, this is just the beginning of, of this, this long, longer passage we're going to look at, answers the question, why did Jesus, why did his own people reject him? Why did the people of God reject the Son of God when he came into the world? And uh, the writer of, of Isaiah, I, that is Isaiah, uh, tells us why he was rejected. I want to read this to you first. We're going to read all of chapter 53, and then we'll come back and just look at the first few verses. But this is what it says. Who has believed our message, our report, our announcement about the coming of the, the Messiah, the anointed one, or the servant of the Lord to do his work? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, who knows the mighty power of God being demonstrated in the coming of Jesus Christ into this world? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a, like a root out of dry ground. In other words, it was a very, almost a supernatural thing. It was a supernatural thing, actually, that he grew up in the most humble of circumstances. Here is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who's full of glory. And he comes into this world and is born in the most humble of circumstances. He wasn't born in a hospital. He was born in an animal shelter. And that's where he came into the world. The eternal Son of God became a man, a human being like us, in order that he might purchase our salvation and bring us back into a relationship with God. It goes on that we should look upon him. What what was there about his coming into the world that would cause us to pay attention to him? Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. We didn't, we didn't see him for who he really was. They mistook him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him. We judged him as being stricken by God, that he was getting what he deserved. He suffered because of sin in his life, just like they did with Job. Remember, Job's comforters did that very thing. And here is this eternal Son of God. In fact, in the Gospel of John, remember John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And everything that has come into being has come into being through him. Nothing has come into being which was not brought into being by him. So he was the person of the Godhead, who actually did the work of bringing things into existence so that we live in this world that God has provided for us. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. This is how they received him. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him so that the judgment for our sin fell on the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God who became a man like us in order to come into this world. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 
and for his generation. Who considered? He's asking the question. Who was it that considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? He died as a substitute for others. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. These are all just historical facts. But I forgot to tell you, this prophecy was given 750 years before it actually took place. So Jesus uh, or Isaiah gives all of the details about his birth and life and death and resurrection. What, how in the world, have you ever thought about this? How could the apostles possibly preach about the resurrection and the coming of Jesus Christ when they had nothing written about it? Because what they preached was the word of God. And yet there was no part of the word of God you would think that would have anything in it about Jesus because this is 750 years before Jesus came. And yet this was a prophecy brought to us by Isaiah the prophet. And he tells us long before it happened exactly what was going to take place. And you could check out every detail of this. It says his grave was assigned with wicked men. They would usually put them in a potter's grave or a, or a, a pauper's grave, I'm sorry. <laughs> and instead, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Now, who arranged that? Well, the living God. He brought a man in the, in the situation who had a brand new tomb that only a rich man could afford. And when he saw what happened, he offered up his tomb for the burial of Jesus Christ because he wanted him to be buried in dignity. And he says he did this because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You ever met somebody there was no deceit in their mouth? Have you ever been around somebody who always tells the truth? A lot of times that's difficult for us because we feel like that we're, if we tell the truth, we're going to do great damage to somebody's life. Yet Jesus Christ was a man of integrity. He told the truth. And he brought people into eternal life. So the Lord was pleased to crush him. That is, God the Father was pleased to crush him. Now, the way he crushed him is he did not rescue him from those who wanted to destroy him. If he would render, he would put him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, that is his seed, those who are saved through his work on the cross. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now what he's talking about here is his suffering and death, and yet he's going to live. He's telling us he's going to live. This is how the apostles could take an Old Testament book, 750 years older before the time that Jesus came into the world, and they could preach the gospel. They could preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because it gives us such detail. He says in verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see those he saved and he will be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. That is, make them right with God. So that when they see God, they're not going to shrink back. They know that they have been accepted based upon the work of Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. He says, this righteous one is my servant. He will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion of the great and he will divide the, the reward with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. That is, those of us who deserved to pay for our sin, but he instead paid for it and stood in our place. And he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now, what the Bible teaches us is everybody that turns to Christ and believes on Christ, 
believes the testimony of God about his son will be justified before God. They will be declared righteous, and they will be right with God for all eternity. That's quite a promise, isn't it? Now, if you remember in John 1 when he says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word uh, was God, and he came into the world, it goes on to say he came to his own creation. Because it says right in there in that very beginning of that passage that everything that came into being came into being through him. He spoke it into existence. And then it says when he came to his own creation, his own people rejected him. Why in the world would they reject him? One who came to deliver them and to set them free. And he gave them all kinds of evidence of who he was by the things that he did. Uh, This is why people get confused and they read the Bible and it talks about supernatural things that they've never seen in their life. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, raised the dead, healed the sick. He changed things. He did supernatural things. He wanted them to see that he had the credentials that he could do what he was called to do, which was to save his people by becoming not strong, but by becoming weak. And he gave himself over to those who were his enemies. And what the father did was the father allowed him, because they had made this agreement before the foundation of the world, that if he was willing to go and do this, that the father would take his death and his suffering as payment in full for the sins of the entire human race. It's an amazing story. And in this passage, in Isaiah 53, he's telling us why his own people rejected him. Why did they? Because you would think, um, I remember Emerson wrote a little thing in one of his books. He said, to be great is to be misunderstood. And what he meant by that, if you're truly great, people are going to misunderstand you. And sometimes you hear people that are, are quite wonderful people. They, have, they display the image of God and, the, and faith in Jesus Christ in an amazing way. And they're always thinking that everybody has a higher opinion of them that they ought to, than they ought to. And so when Emerson said that, he was saying, people that appear to be great, people that are esteemed as great, are the most under, misunderstood people in the world. They know who they are. I used to listen to a guy that uh, really had a big impact in my life, and he used to say this to, to believers, cheer up, you're worse than you think. And God's grace and love for you is greater than you could ever imagine. God's displayed his love for us in, a, in an incredible way by sending his son and letting his son die voluntarily by continuing to obey his father when his enemies wanted him to stop. And if he didn't stop, they were going to do away with him. And that's what they thought they did. They thought they had done away with Jesus. What happened three days later, of course, is he was raised from the dead. And he continued to exist and to communicate his truth through his followers. And you can imagine how upset they were that they thought they had achieved their goal, which was to completely remove Jesus from the scene. And yet he was raised from the dead. And so in this passage, what Isaiah is doing, he's telling us who the most, uh, the people that, that rejected him the most. You would think it would be like communists or Muslims or Buddhists or atheists. But the people who rejected him the most were his own people. In fact, Jesus is, the the name Jesus is the name Joshua. It means Jehovah's salvation. That's what his name means, Jehovah's salvation, the Lord's salvation. But you know what the Jews called him? 
the Jews called him things like, there was a whole series of names they used to call him. One of them was Yeshu, which means may his name and memory be blotted out of existence. Or Tolui, which means the hanged one, the accursed ones. The proof that he was condemned by God as he hung on a cross, they thought. He was also called Ben Padera, which means he's the son of his mother's lover. What they meant by that was he was an illegitimate child born of a Roman soldier. Why did they spread these kind of rumors? Because they had rejected him. And he was considered to be an illegitimate son of Mary. But instead of this, the Jews rejected him. They should have received him. They should have seen who he really was because they saw all the evidence. After all, he was the one who raised the sick. He was the one who preached truth, preached the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this Jesus who healed their sick and raised their dead was rejected by them. In fact, they said it. They're quoted right here in this chapter. We esteemed him as nothing. We didn't exalt him. We didn't consider him to be something special. We esteemed him as nothing. As though what was going on in his life was simply God punishing him for his audacity. But instead, what they were saying was the true and living God providing the way of salvation for his people. In fact, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 2 uh, that those who reject him are banished from the presence of God. In John 3.36, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Why do they continue to reject him when they hear the truth over and over and over again? Well, the context of Isaiah 53 is really the Gentiles. The Gentiles were those that the Jews hated. I understand we're all Gentiles here, or at least most of us. But they despised the Gentiles because they weren't a part of the accepted group before God. That's how they thought of themselves. And so they esteemed him as nothing, and they didn't even consider the fact that this message that he has come into the world to save Gentiles. You know what Gentile means? It means the rest of the world. It's, the Jews are a very small group, even though they're, they're up into the tens of thousands. And yet, compared to the entire population... They are few. But what God says, saving my people, Israel, is too small a thing for my Messiah. He's going to die for the whole world. He's going to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Isn't that something? You know, when you go on vacation, you kind of want to go where nice people are. You want to get away from people that you don't understand and don't like to be around. And yet the Bible says that there are going to be people from every tribe and nation we're going to be in the presence of God and the kingdom of God in the future. And we're going, to get, we're going to be able to get along with them. That's miraculous, isn't it? That you could get along with a group of people that you didn't appreciate and you didn't want to be around. Because Christ has, has done something wonderful. He has brought them back into a relationship with the living God. The fulfillment of this prophecy that he was going to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation is found in the Bible and especially in Isaiah because God sent his son with the intention of saving a vast people, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation are going to be brought into the kingdom of God and they're going to be loved by God in a manifest way. We're going to see the blessings of God poured out upon them. And the Jews had taught, in fact, you see this in the Sermon on the Mount, the Jews were taught, 
First century Jews were taught that they should love fellow Jews and hate Gentiles. That, that shouldn't be shocking. We all, we all know a lot of people are like that. It's just a different group that you're supposed to hate, depending on their own character. You love the right people and you hate the wrong people. And if Christians, if we ever develop this attitude, it's a horrendous thing. It is totally, absolutely in contradiction of the gospel. Jesus has given us a message that is fit for every person that we ever meet, even if they're the kind of people you don't like and you want to get away from. Now, I'm not saying if a guy pulls a gun on you and says, you know, I'm going to shoot you dead in five minutes if you don't get out of here, I would go ahead and leave. But the point is, is that Christ came to the world to redeem and save people, and he has saved murderers because we have a count of it in Scripture. David was a, a murderer. Now you say, well, he must have had good reason. Yeah, he had good reason because he wanted the guy's wife. And yet he was forgiven for his sins because he turned to Christ and he turned to God in, in repentance and faith. And so Christ came to the world so we could be saved from our sin. And every once in a while, we get a real glimpse of our sin. We see the wretchedness of our character. We see how selfish we can be. And what is happening is God is allowing us. He's pulling back the blinds, and we're beginning to see just how desperately we need salvation. I really need to be saved from my sin and the damage that was done to my character by the fall. And that's why Jesus came. Now, his people, they hated him because they rejected him because they didn't believe what he said, and they didn't believe what the Father said about him. They rejected God's word about him. When he asked this question, who has believed our message? Or who has believed a report? Or who has heard this message that I have proclaimed in public? That's what God says. Now, we have many occasions where God speaks to people, and they reject what he says. And, and that is only because he allows it. And so he asks this question, who has believed our message? And the, what he's talking about, who has believed the messenger? the one who's going to come into this world and bear this message of salvation through faith in himself because of his great work for us. When you hear these kids sing these songs, they're obviously singing a lot of things that's over their heads. They haven't come yet to fully grasp the significance of these things, but they will. And many of you have not yet grasped the significance of those things. And so what the Bible does is the Bible opens our eyes. It lets us see the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. And who he is and what he has done is the eternal Son of God, who, according to the purpose and plan of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, chose to be the one who would come into the world and die voluntarily and as a substitute for the guilty. Isn't that amazing? He died for the, as a substitute of the guilty. And how do we receive this salvation, this forgiveness, and this new life in Christ? By faith. What do I mean by that? By believing God's report about his son. Does anybody know what God's report is? You, have you ever heard the, the very words of God spoke publicly about his son? This is what he said, very simple. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what he's talking about specifically is that the Son was willing to come into the world to save a lost humanity by his own work. And so he tells us to keep on proclaiming this message 
that he has done everything necessary for you to be reconciled to the living God. And what it takes is faith in him as a person. He is the one and no other that can save and restore and reconcile us to the God who created us for himself. That's what the Bible says. It says that God created us for himself. He actually created us for us to enjoy a relationship with him. And so he sent his son to reconcile us from our rebellion and to bring us into that very position. And he wants us to trust him. He wants us to believe him. He simply says, believe my report, my testimony about my son. Two times publicly, God the Father spoke. That sounds, like, that sounds a little scary. It almost sounds like a TV series, doesn't it? Sounds absurd, but God spoke publicly, so they heard his voice. And they heard exactly what he said. And he said at one time when Jesus was baptized, and he says to the crowd, the crowd, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then a little later, some years later, he, he did the same thing again. And this was just the, the followers of Jesus. He had met him on a mountaintop, and he brought with him to appear before them two men who had been dead for a long time. They're very famous men in, among the people of God. It was, it was Moses and Elijah. And Jesus appears before them. They saw him physically. He appeared to let them know that the message that they had preached their whole lives was fulfilled. The way that Paul puts it, he says, now once at the end of the ages, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. A lot of people don't like to hear the word sin because it sounds very ominous. But the word sin simply means when you're disobedient to God's commands. We have a problem with that. Here's why. We're not a kingdom. And guess what? England is not a kingdom either. A kingdom is when the king reigns and he is sovereign over that kingdom. And he is responsible or she is responsible for it. In England, we have a a kind of government that's a mix between a democracy and a kingdom. The queen reigns, but she doesn't rule. There's nobody sitting around wondering, I wonder what the queen would have me do in this situation. But the Christian who's following Christ, because he knows he is king, or she knows he is king, they say those kind of things themselves. I wonder what Christ wants me to do in this situation. Because he's sovereign. He's reigning supreme. Now, you may be thinking, well, that would be a horrible thing. I'd never want to live in a kingdom where there was a king who had all authority and sovereignty over everything, and he could command us, and we would have to do it. Well, you would if he was a righteous man, if he was a righteous person, and a person with no limitations on his ability, and that he commanded you because he loved you. Just like you parents do. Sometimes you tell your children things they don't want to hear. But you are commanding it because you know what's good for them. And they're thinking, they think they know what's good for me, but they don't. And you kind of think that about God sometimes. That's what happened to Job's wife. She thought that God was making a huge mistake. And so she suggests to her husband, why don't you just curse God and die? Because she didn't know the heart of God. What God has put before you, and his primary commandment is this, according to Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's the two impossible things that cannot be done apart from the, from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But we're told in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I think it's verse 6, 
It says, the God who said, let light shine in darkness, is the one who has shown into our hearts the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, the Holy Spirit is able to convince a heart who is doubting that he truly is the creator and sustainer of all things, and that he has sent his son into the world to reconcile us into this relationship that he wants to bring us, simply by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting listening to these kids sing because um, the Bible says the heart expresses itself through singing. That often we, we, we end up singing, and I know it's better to sing out when you're driving and no one can hear you, and then you can just sing with all your heart. And if you put a headphone on, like, a, like you've got a, you're talking on the telephone, they just think you're talking to somebody. But you can sing to the living God if your heart is filled with a love for him because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. That's who he is. He has set his love on you. And he wants to pour blessings into your life if you simply turn to Christ and receive him by faith. Believe the Father's report about his son. Now, you, what do you think would be better if you met somebody and they said to you something very authoritative and they said, this is how it is, this is what's happened, this is what's going to happen. If you had confidence in that person, you'll believe what they say, wouldn't you? I had an investment guy that told me one time about... I don't know, it's been 35 years ago, that I should take all of my Apple stock and sell it. I did that. If I had not sold it, I would be a millionaire right now. But I believed him, I trusted him, because he was highly uh, recommended by a, a guy that I know that was very competent about those kind of things. But he was wrong. But if you believe, if you trust the testimony of the living God, that he has actually created you for a purpose and that he sent his son into the world for a very high purpose. And that was to redeem you and to bring you into relationship with him. You would believe him. But the only way that can happen is if the spirit of God opens your eyes and opens your heart to know the one who manifests his love towards you, not only in creating you, but sending someone to redeem you. And that's what Christmas is about. It's celebrating the fact that the redeemer came 2,000 years ago and he stood in our place, and he voluntarily suffered and died so that we could live and be reconciled to the living God. So I would tell you the greatest Christmas gift you could ever receive is simply receiving the salvation and the forgiveness and the blessings that God wants to give every person here. And it comes simply by believing him and trusting him. The message of God is not hard to find. This is called the Bible. There's 66 little books in this that are bound together as one book. And in this Bible, it tells you what God's message is and what he's asking you to do. What he's, what he, he's the king of glory, and so he's actually commanding you because he has all authority in heaven and upon earth. And in this book, you'll find a message like it's found in, I know you'll never remember this, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it gives you the facts of the gospel, the good news that, Je that God has sent to us about his son, Jesus. And those four facts are this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And secondly, he was buried according to the scriptures. That's what you do with people when they die. 
And then third, he was raised from the dead, according to the scriptures. What he means by that, this is what the Old Testament taught. It's what Isaiah 53 teaches. He would be raised from the dead and made alive. And then the fourth thing is he was seen by eyewitnesses. You know what this is? There's this, the New Testament, which is over here towards the back, it starts with three testimonies. They're stories about Jesus. They're the story of Jesus. And they're written by four men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And who, what they are is eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They're claiming that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and they saw him, and they talked to him. And he taught them and preached to them before he went back to the Father. And if that sounds too fast and fantastic to believe, ask him to open your eyes. Ask him to help you to understand the truth about this. And what you will discover is he is very willing to do that and to bring you into a living relationship with him because that is his goal and his purpose for us. And he's the sovereign king of heaven and earth. And learning to live in obedience to the one who has all wisdom and he's full of love and kindness and wisdom. Learning to obey him is one of the greatest things you could ever do. I had to write a self-help book like this, How to Obey the Commandments of God, because it would be the greatest blessing you ever have in all of life. When I talk about commandments, I'm talking about his great commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what happens is this. This is the purpose of that commandment. This is how it's going to work out. You're not going to be able to do it. And when you find out you can't do it, you will turn to him and call upon his name and ask him to give you faith to believe the message concerning his own son who died for us and was raised for us. And he'll bring us into the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Our Father, we are grateful today that Jesus came and told us the truth And we have seen the evidence of the truth every day in our lives. We are grateful, Father, for what you've done in Jesus Christ, that all of our shortcomings, everything about us that would keep us from the kingdom of God has been removed in Christ Jesus. So we give you thanks for him. We confess to you that the greatest thing that's ever happened to us is that Jesus Christ has come into our life simply by trusting him, receiving him. When when the writer of of this book, Isaiah, he described the fact that faith will change everything. And the Gospel of John, the Apostle John wrote and said, he came into his own creation and his own people did not receive him, but as many as did receive them, to them he had given the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name. Thank you for that glorious, glorious promise. And I pray you would cause it to penetrate our hearts. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for giving your son so that we could be made right with you. And we pray that we could experience that even today. In Christ's name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.